Gimmick Tree Entertainment presents the first annual Bruiser Brody Cup, January 25th at the Lithuanian Music Hall, located at 2715 Allegheny Avenue in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Doors open at 7 p.m. bell time at 8.30. The event features a tournament honoring the legendary Bruiser Brody, featuring two fatal four-way elimination matches to determine the final one-on-one matchup to crown the first ever Bruiser Brody Cup winner. In non-tournament matches, Eddie Edwards has accepted the open challenge from modern vintage wrestling champion Joey Lynch. Other stars that have been confirmed, King Kong Bundy, NWA women's champion Jazz, ECW legend The Sandman, and the Impact Wrestling Hall of Famer himself, The Monster Abyss. For more information, go to realgimmicktree.com. Again, that's realgimmicktree.com. Do not miss the Bruiser Brody Memorial Cup. The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. He's outspoken. You will tell your kids and your grandkids and your great-great-grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise, and he was the greatest world's heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas, and you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. Welcome in to the Triple Threat Podcast, episode number 74 of this Triple Threat Podcast. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always on the two-man power trip, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only JP John Paz. And on this show, we are welcoming him in for a, <laughs> a hell of an episode up here. He's raring to go. He is the one and only franchise, Shane Douglas. Shane, I hope you feel better than I sound. Well, I'm just trying to make sure that I can progressive my I mean progress through this uh whole episode. Well, we'll be here to lead you, partner. It's like uh it won't be the blind leading the blind. It'll be uh the fuzzy eyed versus uh, you know, maybe the uh the murky waters. But we'll get you through and we'll uh we'll get you on your way. We got a big weekend coming up uh this weekend in Philadelphia where we'll all be uh, together, we will all be uh, kind of doing Kumbaya at the ECW Arena. We've talked about these icon shows a lot, and we'll get to that. Uh, and obviously, you know, we came off of WrestleCade two weeks ago. But one thing before we get rolling into it, we got to bring this up just because it's been hilarious. And John's received messages from friends of ours that had to ask. <laughs> there is this beautiful ECW reunion photo that's circulating the rounds of the interwebs from WrestleCade. Now, do you remember a group photo being taken during the ECW panel? I don't. No, uh, I mean, we, we, we took several pictures, but I don't know what you're referring to. Okay, so there is a glorious uh, ECW group photo. Everybody who was on the panel is up there. Everybody's happy, you know, reliving the past. Everybody's great. In the background of this picture... <laughs> Is I can only I can only say there was a moose sighting in this picture that's circulating the internet as uh, the one and only Chris Hughes made his way into the ECW reunion photo that's being shared by everybody online. So I just thought you'd uh, I just thought you'd think that's funny. Hey, you didn't know Moose was part of the ECW. <laughs> <laughs> he he he's, 
Yeah, you know, you had your Mikey Whipwrecks, you had your Chris Chetties, and your Danny Dorings and Road Kills, and your franchises and Tazes, and your your uh, general class mooses. <laughs> Is he a Canadian moose? Maybe he's a special attraction. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. <laughs> I said possibly illegitimate son of uh, Hack Myers or uh, or the Blue Meanie. Could, could be. Yeah, could be. <laughs> but nonetheless, just kind of funny because you see all these guys sharing this photo and everybody's asking, who's the big guy in the back and who's this guy and, you know, what's he doing there? So he always manages to have the most creative collection of uh, photos that you could possibly find. So just uh, funny nonetheless. Yeah, doesn't shock me. <laughs> but this weekend we will be in Philadelphia. It's going to be uh, another fun time. We'll be there uh, with Bob Backlund and King Kong Bundy. You will be there with a multitude of the ECW. Sweet. Yeah, a multitude of your ECW pals, Just Incredible, Mikey Whipwreck, Jerry Lynn, The Sandman. You guys will be doing your thing, an ECW Champions reunion inside the ECW arena. So we'll have a nice uh, report on that for next week's show. But... Uh, you know, we're getting down to the end of the year here, Shane, and this is where I guess it's like the closure of a lot of the big convention circuits, and this is uh, this is pretty much the final farewell to the year 2018 on the convention scene. Good fucking riddance on the <laughs> 2018. Huh? I mean, it's uh, as far as the conventions go, been a great time. I mean, I you know, I always enjoy meeting the fans and always enjoy seeing my brothers and sisters. Uh, uh, but as far as 2018 goes, general year, I'm ready for 2019. Absolutely. Yeah, bring it on. We can definitely uh, see a little sunshine on the other side of that calendar. But a little bit of sadness on this part of the week. I know you know there's been a lot of stuff going on this week, but in the world of wrestling, yeah. we had two passings. Earlier in the week, we had the Dynamite Kid passing away at the age of 60. Obviously, everybody knows the story of the Dynamite Kid, and he has not had a, a very good last couple of years. He's been in a wheelchair. He's had a multitude of health problems, and he has succumbed to whatever those health problems were. And he passed away a couple days ago. And then just this afternoon, as we're recording this on Thursday, the passing of Larry the Axe Hennig, who, Shane, I don't even know if you know this, we just had on our show a couple weeks ago. So a sad week yeah. for pro wrestling. Yeah, no no question. I mean, look, it's, you know, we as we... You know, as wrestling, as big as it was in the 80s and 90s, uh, much, much bigger than it is today, as far as numerical value goes, 52 million fans watching in America alone uh, 20, 23 years ago. Uh, but uh, I'll start with Larry. Uh, you know, Larry Hennig and I didn't meet each other until much later. Uh, it was after the time that... Uh, Kurt and I were pushed around as uh, being called the perfect pair in a tag team. Uh, so I, I didn't really get to know Larry until much later in my career. But what a great guy. Uh, you know, just really was a genuine guy. Uh, and I'd always heard good things about him, and it wasn't until the last couple of years that I really got to know him. And in fact, at WrestleCon uh, this past year, uh, I had a long talk with he and his wife. Uh, mostly centering around Kurt, uh, because, you know, Kurt and I hung around quite a bit on the road. Uh, but, you know, Larry was, you know, exactly what I saw with Dominic and Bruno. He beckoned back to an age where, you know, if he didn't like you, he wasn't going to spend his time talking to you. Uh, but Larry was the kind of guy that liked talking to people and liked meeting people and, and, and had respect for the guys that came in the business after him. And, uh, you know, so I, I was really heartbroken to hear that, uh, about Larry because he, like I said, having met him so late in my career, but just came across as such a genuinely, uh, nice guy. And, uh, you know, as any of us that are parents can imagine losing a kid, uh, it was very apparent in talking with Larry this last year in, at WrestleCon and and Kurt's mother that uh, that you know that that's a, a that that's a horrific thing that no parent can really ever get past 
And uh, I think, you know, just in looking back, they genuinely both enjoyed talking to somebody that knew their son. And it was just a very nice conversation back and forth. And, uh, you know, I was really, really saddened to hear uh, when I got the text earlier today that, that Larry had passed away. As for Dynamite, I, I didn't know uh, uh, Tom very well. Uh, you know, he was, by the time I had started coming up in the business, the Bulldogs had pretty much had the run, and uh, Tom was gone, and, you know, D- Davey was getting, like, sort of the singles run. Uh, so I never really knew Tom very well, and, and uh, just suffice it to say that in my book, 60 is, by today's standards, awfully young to die. And, you know, so my deepest sympathies to both uh, Tom and Larry's families uh, that, you know, that they're having to face at this time. I, you know, I will say like in, in, in the Axis case, you know, he, he lived a good life. I mean, he, he lived a full life. And, you know, when I spoke to him in, at WrestleCon, he was, you know, talking about, you know, he was a real estate agent and was still selling, you know, out and, and working. And, you know, it just really beckoned back to me all of what I appreciate about that generation, that they were hard workers to the very end. Uh, they loved the business. Uh, they loved uh, uh, where the business had taken, the, the trajectory that it had taken, albeit maybe not uh, the nuts and bolts of that trajectory. You know, so uh, my deepest sympathies go out to both families. And, uh, you know, suffice it to say, the business has lost two, uh, two more incredible names to the pantheon of wrestling. Oh, absolutely. And I want to take... I want to take a look at both of them uh, with a couple extra questions, but I want to start first with Dynamite, if we can. I want to circle back to Larry Hennig, because then I want to ask John about what his feeling was on the interview, but I just want to focus in on Dynamite, and obviously, you know, when it comes to the connection you would have maybe had to him was the match in 1986, where Mick Foley unceremoniously had his jaw closed uh, due to... uh, you know, some in-ring, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> liberties perhaps uh, t- towards a young kid of, that Mick Foley was at the time. And obviously right. for you being so young in the business, that's going to leave an impression on you as how, you know, you should do business correctly and how you should protect your opponent. It's like almost like it was a lesson in itself for that whole day you were there working as well as observing. But talk about, if you can, when you guys left that night and when Mick was, you know, having to recover from this you know, what I believe it was a was it a stiff clothesline that just absolutely took yeah. his head off. Uh, but if you can kind of take us back to that, and that was obviously your first real up close impression of Dynamite. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, when you look at at Tom, you know, it was what five nine, five ten. I'm guessing. I, again, I didn't know Tom very well. <clears throat> you know, mid six foot four. Um, you know, and and out there to do what is expected of him. Uh, to take his bumps, to get the, the, the stars over. And, we, you know, you, you can, I'm sure, find it online today, anywhere. Uh, you know, when when they, when they he clotheslines on uh, Mick, you know, it's pretty obvious, and I've watched him, you know, dozens of times over the years. It's pretty damn clear he's aiming to do exactly what he did. Uh, you know, which, and again, I, I don't want to talk ill of somebody that's just passed, but you know, in our business, you know, we we place ourselves in each other's hands. And, you know, Mick, as a young kid, eager to please, as we all were at that point in our career, uh, goes in and shoots himself, you know, takes the iris whip and, and is coming in to take the clothesline as any young kid would expect to take. And, uh, like I said, it's, it's not my comment. It's, you can watch the video for yourself and see it was pretty evident that he was, uh, Tom was attempting to do, uh, uh, exactly what happened, you know, hit Mick in the jaw because otherwise how does a five foot nine, five foot 10 guy 
hit a guy that's six foot four in the jaw. Um, you know, there, it's possible accidents. Accidents happen in this business and, you know, misalignments, that sort of thing. But in my educated guess and watching that video, uh, knowing what I know of the business now as the veteran in the business, uh, it's pretty evident as to what was going on there. Uh, more so after the fact. Because after the fact, and, and Mick could probably give better light to this than I could, but as I recall, uh, Mick was never thanked for the match and was never apologized to for the for the potato. And, you know, again, you don't want to talk bad about Tony's past, but when you go back and look at that, and we all know Mick today, uh, it just really was a level of unprofessionalism in my book that was unnecessary. Yeah, the, uh, the WWE has actually even released that on one of the McFoley DVD compilations. So it is available if you want to check it out. If you haven't, uh, if you haven't seen it, I mean, one of the first, you know, I, I get actually no, it's probably was that. I think that might have been his first televised uh, match. That was that was mixed. that was his first night. Yeah, that was our first night. Uh, I wrestled. My first match that night was with uh, Randy Savage. And I believe uh, I believe I also wrestled Paul Orndorff and Jake that night, and also might have been uh, uh, Butch Reed. There, I, I had three or four matches that night, and Mick had had. I think I believe that was his first match, going up and doing enhancement matches in WWE, WWF then. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And you have such great memories of, of that whole thing with, you know, everybody kind of giving you, you know, positive feedback and, you know, yeah. and it's it's just kind of funny, the parallels, you know. But what would you, do you recall what Dominic said to Mick about that experience at all? No. Uh, you know, when Dominic would send us up there, it was sort of like uh, he wanted us to learn. In hindsight, I'm, I'm taking a guess at this. But he wanted us to learn, you know, all aspects of the business. And I think in many ways the business had changed in dramatic ways since uh, Dominic and his generation have been on the road. Uh, but Dominic was very rare to put in his two cents worth after something like that. You know, there, there might have been the offhand comment like that, you know, that's bullshit or, uh, you know, maybe a little more colorful than that. Uh, but... You know, Dominic would try to stay out of the fray, I think, and realizing that people like me and Mick, if we were going to have a future in the business at that time, we would have to feel our way through it. And, uh, you know, Dominic sort of stayed off to the side on that. And me personally, I, I rarely went to Dominic with stuff like that. You know, I, I again, you had mentioned a second ago that you know, my experiences up there, especially at that time, were by and large, uh, you know, uh, positive. You know, not that you didn't feel like a real piece of shit walking to the ring, you know, as an enhancement guy, that sort of thing. But the feedback that I got from the guys that I worked with was always uh, very positive. You know, so, you know, it was sort of a give and take in that respect, but I never went back to Dominic that I can recall and said, Hey, you know, this happened or that happened. and How should we handle that? Uh, it seemed to me like Dominic was like the father, uh, hen throwing us out into the farmyard and expecting us to find our way. Um, you know, and I'm guessing Mick was probably pretty much the same because we were sort of two birds of a stone. And, uh, you know, it, it, Dominic was never, it, it wasn't like Dominic was saying, like, you know, sink or swim on your own. Uh, but I think, you know, we had sort of gathered from what Dominic had taught us and had been teaching us that we needed to learn the business, the good and the bad side of the business. It definitely, you guys got both ends of the, uh, the spectrum on that. But then to then kind of go back to Larry Hennig, so obviously, you know, you talked about Kurt Hennig and his son and, and 16 years having passed already since Kurt Hennig passed away. 
Uh, but then obviously his gr- yeah right time ap- absolutely flies and to think what he could have done in the business in that time just in, one he's one of my personal all time favorite guys to ever watch. I mean he's just the the absolute you know hate to say it perfect uh, professional wrestler from my point of view. But you know his grandson too, Curtis Axel Joe Hennig is in the WWE right now and it's been there for almost a decade at, at this point. So the genes of the Hennig family. Very strong, and the ties to wrestling continue on. Um, but obviously, you know, th- there's always that kind of funny thing, and this is where I'll work John in in a minute. You know, they they have Curtis Axel is what they call him, and it's a tribute to obviously Kurt Hennig and Larry the Axe Hennig. But if this kid was able to get a run as Joe Hennig, the Hennig name could really live on in infamy. Have you had the chance to watch Curtis Axel at all in your uh, you know your travels over the years? Well, in the fact that I don't watch much of the WWE product, uh, I, I haven't caught much. I have seen, you know, pieces uh, of what he's done. I, I just, for me, as, as you know, we've talked about how many times off, uh, you know, off the podcast, that I, I, no matter how hard I try to watch the show, it, it devolves to me in, in watching all the worst of what I've seen happen to my business. Uh, but for the life of me, I, I can, I've, I've heard all the explanations, you know, uh, about his name, that sort of thing. But I, I keep going back to if I've got a kid whose name is Joe Roethlisberger and he's trying to play quarterback in the NFL or Joe Brady and he's trying to play in the NFL I'm not going to call them Joe Blow or John Smith. I, I just, as perplexing as it is to me, I, you know, I've, I've spent my career trying to figure out this company that's watched a massive uh, devaluation of our business, maybe not in the dollar sense, but in the cultural impact sense. Uh, and for the life of me, I cannot figure out why. You would not be naming this kid something Hennig. Uh, you know, every wrestling fan of those 52 million that used to watch on a weekly basis, no, every single one of those 52 million knows who Mr. Perfect is. Probably 99%, if not 100, know who Larry the Axe Hennig is. So why you would call their Larry's grandson and Kurt's son Curtis Axel, something completely <laughs> set apart from that incredible Hennig name and legacy is beyond me. I, I, I cannot figure it out, and I don't want to hear an explanation as to why, because it's dumb as hell. Uh, again, this kid has lineage that is out the wazoo. And even though you could argue while well, the fans today know, it doesn't matter. You know, you don't call Batman's kid Joe or Tom or Barry. <laughs> you name him Batman's kid. You know, it's uh, it just to me is just so uh, representative of what the WWE has become. And, you know, so far away from all the tendrils and roots of what our business is supposed to be that uh, I think it speaks for itself. There's nothing that I could say that could add to a more damnation of the WWE than that. Well, it's better than his first name, which was Michael McGillicuddy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So it's a slight improvement, but I digress. But, Let me get John in here now because John was the one who sat down and interviewed Larry the Axe, I mean, basically a month ago at this point. And, uh, you know, there was a little traction on the interview today and it was starting to pop up in a few places. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is, (laughs) I hate to say it's becoming old hat, but we've had a couple final interviews uh, of these legends. And you hang your hat on it like, wow, it's great for our show, but it also sucks because you want them to stay around a lot longer. But, John, you know, you got the chance to talk to the Axe. And, I mean, he was great answering everything that you threw at him. But, you know, kind of what's your uh, look back now at that interview being about a month ago and, 
you know, really getting some of those final comments out of the acts. Pretty uh, shocking. Just when I heard the news, I was like, no way, because it was basically less than a month ago. So, you know, you're thinking your head is, is a lot sooner. You're, you know, it just happened, basically. So I'm just thinking they're sitting like, like there's no way you could have passed. I just talked to him not that long ago, a couple weeks ago. And then after the interview, just kind of followed up. Thank you. you know, obviously, it was a big honor having you on. I really appreciate it. You know, he was on for almost an hour. I mean, really, really gave me a lot of stuff and gave me some good stuff. Uh, obviously, about his career, about Kurt's career, about Curtis Axel, and talking about how he still watches all of his matches. He'll DVR, have his wife DVR, just so he could see his grandson wrestle. I mean, just like a lot of cool stuff that he mentioned in the interview, which I thought was great. And I thought he was great. I thought he sounded great. Um, but I never even thought about it just because I know he was older, he's in his eighties and all this other stuff, but he was so active and he was still working and he was doing this and that. And he was kind of joking about how a lot of people think he's older and mentally he's not that old. And, you know, he's made a couple of jokes that, you know, that you think about it now, it's like, wow, you know, I can't believe he passed. And, you know, in his eighties, which is pretty common for, for a man to, to pass, but I, for whatever reason, just didn't think of him as that old obviously 80 is old but if you know what i mean and i just kind of didn't think to me that he would be passing so soon it just felt like uh hit a little home there you know it was a little little bit a little bit sad uh, for sure to hear that uh, about uh, larry the axe and you know he just had a beer named after him in robinsdale minnesota which was his hometown and he had all this positive stuff going on so that kind of adds a little bit more of an element of of sadness to it because he just kind of was getting his name almost back out there, especially in his hometown. I thought that was really cool. And they just had the beer named after him. They just honored him um, with the Minnesota wrestling hall of fame again. So, you know, it was a lot of things were happening all at once and, and for him and a lot, you know, he had a lot of things going on. I just was shocked to hear that, that he had passed. Yeah, I'm pretty well covered it. I mean, you know, having spoken to him, I'm sure you, you gathered that what a genuine guy he was. You know, he wasn't one to bullshit uh, or, you know, to sort of throw out there just some comment. He, in my experience, I'm talking to the axe, he was always measured uh, that when he said something, you could tell he had thought it through. Um, uh, you know, I, for one, am going to miss him. You know, I, I think our business took a huge step back today. Uh, you know, we, we've gone in, you know, we've, 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 everybody knows my feelings of the sports entertainment genre. But when you go back and see what that genre was built on, on the Larry the Accentics and, and these guys that have worked in the AWA and the UWF and the NWA and Georgia Championship Wrestling and you know, those guys all were cut from the same cloth. You know, I don't mean to say that they were all saints and they were all sinners. You had, you know, you had your, your compendium of both. But when you met a guy like Larry and spoke to him and got to know him, you really quickly began to realize, hey, he's exactly in temperament like Bruno San Martino or like Dominic or whoever. Uh, you know, you, you, you saw this string running through all of them. And when you met the jerks, you could say, well, <laughs> he's like this person or that person. Uh, but, you know, th that gen that entire generation, regardless of where they worked, had this, uh, this sort of stamp on them. You know, he could beckon back, you know, for anybody that knew and got to know Larry the Axenic and knew the other guys from that generation, you would see a lot of com uh, uh, comparisons that you would say, well, this, I, you know, this is exactly like this person or that person. Uh, you know, and the same for the, for the guys that go on the opposite side, you know, where you'd say, well, uh, you know, he's just like this one or that one. But they were all cut from a general piece of cloth. And I, I think the business, and by and large, when you see where the industry has gone. And you look back to those guys, at least for a guy like me, uh, where the industry has gone errant is that, in my estimation, we've lost all the experience and, and uh, 
temperament of these guys that have gone before us that built the industry that we all made our living in. It's not like they were in some other, it's not like some baseball players and we're football players and talking about their business. Those guys, the Larry the Actenigs and the Brunos, uh, these are the guys that built professional wrestling that became the business that drew 52 million people per week in this country alone. And so when fans hear me talk about sports entertainment and professional wrestling and understanding that there's a definite dichotomy to me, that there's a split in the road, this is this and that is that. Uh, this is professional wrestling and that ain't it's sports entertainment. That's what I'm talking about. What, you know, go back and watch any of Larry, the Axenics matches, and you will see a feel and a flavor that is very reminiscent of a Bruno San Martino or anybody from that generation. Uh, and then compare that if to whoever you like. In today's business, this is not a repudiation of any kid in the business today. It's a repudiation of the business and the people that are running it. Because if a kid can do 25 backflips in a match and can't replicate the realism that Larry Hennig and guys of his, uh, uh, you know, of his generation brought to the table, well, then you tell me which would you rather prefer. Would you rather prefer the 26 backflips in every single match that you watch or the realism that Larry Henning brought and guys of his generation brought to the table? That's what's missing from our business today. One thing that was so cool to talk to him, because like you said, with Bruno and Dominic, from that golden era, from the era of the tough guy, he was one of the truly, truly tough guys. Obviously, he came with Harley Race. You know, he worked for Vern for a long time. He would travel to all Japan. You know what I mean? It's just those tough guys, legit tough guys in the business that were losing so rapidly. And it's just kind of, he might have been one of the last few legitimate tough guys left. Yeah. Well, there's no, you know, anybody who the acts knew that legitimate is what you're talking about. You know, he wasn't a pretend tough guy. He was a tough guy. But he was always also a great guy. You know, he's a big softy and, uh, you know, loved the business and loved the fans and loved talking with the fans and loved building the industry. Uh, it wasn't like he was just going out looking for a fight to, to find a fight. Uh, but in my experience with Larry was that he was a guy that you don't want to cross. There was a legitimacy there that... Uh, when you watched him on camera having a worked match, uh, you, it didn't matter what the outcome of the match was. You could tell in watching him and the way he carried himself and the way he portrayed his matches and his side of the matches that there was a legitimacy there. He was a legitimate tough guy. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, we can go into all those stories about, you know, things that happened backstage, you know, all these rumors of, you know, the, the way stories sort of take on life of their own in this business, right? You don't need to get into any of that. Go back and watch any Larry the Axe-Hennig match, and you can tell he was a tough son of a bitch. Uh, he didn't have to do 25 backflips landing on his feet to try to prove that point. You can watch it and, and see that there was an individuality to his style. He wasn't mimicking Vern or... Bruno or somebody else. Larry Hennig was being Larry the Axe Hennig. And that's what I think is missing in spades in our business today. That there's no individual flavor. Uh, you know, when you go back and watch Larry Hennig again, there's no ambiguity. You're, when you're watching him, if you put him in a uh, full head-to-toe black body suit, you would go, oh, that's, that's Hennig, that's the Axe right there. As soon as you watched him doing the moves... You would know which one was Larry the Axe Hennig. Would you be able to do the same today in our industry today? I, I just don't believe you could. Totally, totally agree on that. But now if we can change gears just a little bit and talk about something that was kind of 
big in the Twitter world and big in the wrestling world uh, for about a week or so. It was a little bit of a Twitter feud and a little bit of a funny one at that. Jim Cornette versus David Arquette. Obviously, if anybody follows Two Man Power Trip, they know that uh, we've had on uh, Jim Cornette about three or four times in the show. We're very, uh, very friendly with him. We've had on David Arquette. Obviously, he was at the convention last year. And Jim Cornette will be at our convention in Richmond this year. So there's a little tie-in, a little funny little mix between them that they'll both be part of uh, our convention, uh, just one year separate from each other down in Richmond. Mm. But, but I just think it's funny that you get Jim Cornette, you get David Arquette, and somehow this is a Twitter feud. Have you seen this or heard about this at all, Shane? Oh, only when you sent it to me. Again, I've been you know so tied up for the last couple of weeks I haven't. Even been able to get on Twitter. Uh, and my apologies to the fans for that, but only when you sent it to me, I sort of did a quick check on it. Uh, you know, look, as far as when it, Jim, you know, the one thing I can tell you about Jim Cornette is he is a walking encyclopedia of our business, and you know, he can when when somebody can tell you. Uh, it was April 3rd, 1977, when Larry Hennig dropped the belt to Bockwinkle in the Minneapolis Civic Center. You know, I I love professional wrestling. I've ate, slept it for the last many years of my life. I don't know it to that degree. I, I couldn't tell you what the date was when Bruno lost to Ivan Koloff or whoever else. Uh, so when it comes to stuff like that, I can tell you that Cornette has the business cornered when it comes to the specifics of information. Uh, but you know, what, what led off the, the, the battle of the words between, uh, Arquette and Cornette? Well, Arquette had that match that we talked about against Nick Gage and cut himself open. So basically, um, I guess on his podcast, Cornette was you know telling his opinions on that match and how yeah. he's ripping on Arquette for doing it. He's an idiot, this and that. So um, David Arquette put on Twitter, finally heard Jim Cornette talk shit about me. He had some strong points, missed most of the obvious ones. One point I like to make is you don't have to be an asshole to share your opinion. So then Cornette saw this and put, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, it went off, right? <laughs> yeah, but David, how about I come to Hollywood and make some shitty movies to embarrass your profession like you do to mine? Stick to being a fan. Uh, we're fine. Um, trying to wrestle and doing garbage matches with bank robbers will not endear you to me. Free advice, or you could just fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah. You know, you. You're gonna to have to walk ten country miles if you're gonna get a hold of corny ahead of corny on on the uh, the barb, right? I mean, uh, you know, and, and again, he's a walking encyclopedia of our business. You know, I think what we have here is we have two worlds colliding. You know, we have uh, what I consider to be the best uh, uh, of our business. When you go back and you watch, you know, Jim Cornette and Midnight Express. You'd be hard-pressed to find a segment that Cornette did with the Midnight Express or any segment that Cornette did that wasn't as compelling as fuck to watch back in the day. Um, You you never saw Cornette come on camera and go, ah, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Cornette, right? I mean, you were glued to the the television. Um, But I think on Arquette's side, you know, that aside from, you know, not, not aside, in addition to the whole thing that happened in WCW with the world title belt, something that I personally didn't believe in. But I, I got to admit that there's some modicum of respect that, you know, all these years later, nearly 20 years later, that this guy who could obviously find a much easier path in Hollywood is going out and taking on matches like this and finding out that it ain't the easiest path. Uh, but it, it's two worlds. It, it's like trying to compare uh, heat miser with snow miser, right? It's it's trying to compare uh, up with down. You know, they're, they're two opposing points of view that are never going to converge. Uh, you know, obviously Cornette's going to hammer and, and be dead right on every point that he makes 
from the hist- historical aspects of our business. But Arquette, you know, and, and coming, I, I give the guy some modicum of respect that after the whole WCW fiasco and all the years that that's been talked about, that he is putting his toe into the ring trying to find some path forward with that to try to make the story complete. Uh, you know, I, I, I obviously my heart's going to go with Cornette, but, you know, because we come from very similar places in the business and uh, the same acerbic points of view. But, you know, again, I, I, I've got to find some level of respect for Arquette that he could have just as easily said, hey, you know, I'm a WCW world champion and you're not. Uh, but he's trying to legitimize that now. And, you know, spring chicken and doing it. You know, so, uh, you know, I, I see it as like two, two uh, opposing views on opposite ends of the spectrum that are never, no matter how long they talk and discuss it, are going to converge, but there's validity to both points of view. Hey, let's pause for one second and remind you that today's episode is brought to you by our brand new sponsor, Eat Your Coffee. Eat Your Coffee is a coffee company that was founded by coffee-deprived college students that pioneered a new category in caffeinated natural snacks. The company's first product line, Eat Your Coffee Bars, are a date-based snack bar caffeinated with fair trade coffee, which would be comparable to one cup, and made with real ingredients so you can feel good with every energizing bite. Eat Your Coffee snack bars are non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, kosher, 70% organic, and available in three delicious flavors, including fudgy mocha latte, salted caramel macchiato, and peanut butter mocha, my personal favorite. Now that is an energizing combination because they are on a mission to help get people energized with naturally caffeinated snacks made with real, ethically sourced ingredients. So if you want more information, head on over to www.eatyour.coffee, as well as follow them on Instagram, follow them on Facebook, follow them on Pinterest, and follow them on Twitter, and get all the information on how you can energize the moment with eat your coffee bars and we are very friendly with, with both guys so we won't take it side either uh, shane even though you did kind of lean cornet there I, I and obviously you know the old school franchise and you definitely did but um and, and we remember i'm the guy that i'm the guy that he hit with the goddamn tennis racket so <laughs> you know it's uh he, he knew Johnny Ace wasn't going to be a threat, so he took me out first. Yes. I sort of think as, as a bona fide uh, stamp of approval. <laughs> I just think it's so funny that Arquette, I don't, maybe he's not as familiar with Cornette or not. I felt like he kind of threw that tweet out there without really thinking like, wait a second, Cornette's going to come yeah. at me with guns a-blazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Almost yeah, like I mean, the, anybody... deer in the headlights. Yeah, any of us that know Cornette know right that he's he's not going to take that that kind of a comeback uh, lying down. But you know, again, I, I just go back like to me, I, I I see it like as as movies and movies in my head, and I can't recall any time that I ever saw Cornette on camera that it wasn't compelling as fuck. You know that you could just say, well. I it's just Tim Cornetic, I'm going to go to take a piss or go get a beer or whatever. I mean, when you saw Jim Cornette in the Midnight Express, that was one of those iconic periods where you knew you were going to get, whether you loved him or hated him, that, that was a taste. Uh, you're a babyface fan or a heel fan. But when you saw Jim Cornette, I, I, I would dare say that nobody was walking away from the TV. The ones that hated him were going to sit there and want to throw, a, you know, a, a beer for the TV or put their foot to the TV, and the ones that loved him were going to stick to every syllable that he said. The bottom line is, both were watching, and I think that's a big thing that we're missing in the business today. You know, where you know there's some following this guy, some following that guy, but. You know, I, I, it's been some time that I've stopped and looked at the ratings, like the quarter hour ratings and, you know, broken it down to that degree, but I'd be willing to bet that there's 
Well, I know without without even having to check it. When you go back and you, like I said, when you watch those Cornette, just using Jim Cornette as an example of that period, uh, that everybody was compelled to watch. And, you know, stepping out on the limb, I don't see that same kind of verve in the ratings today. You know, where people are watching and saying, I can't miss segment two because that's going to be fill in the blank and it's going to be compelling. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's two different industries, uh, sports entertainment and professional wrestling. As, as a professional wrestling fan, you couldn't get me to tune out. Uh, if it was on and I was in front of the TV, I was damn well watching. Uh, I don't see the same kind of connection in sports entertainment. I guess you didn't realize they've been breaking records lately. Uh, did you notice that? Or did you, have you read anything about them breaking records uh, recently on Raw? <laughs> Which, and what are those records? <laughs> I, I it's, it's actually not a good record. It was the lowest rated Raw ever in history of Raw. Well, see, that that's surprising to me because in the last years I've read that same epitaph about five <laughs> or six times. The lowest rated Raw ever and then you know a month or two or three later the, the lowest rated Raw ever uh, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me or shock me. Uh, all I would say is if, if our friends at Fox Sports are watching or listening to right now they may want to put out another statement because the three to 3.5 million that they've stated they expect to get on Friday night with SmackDown. All I'll say to that is, <laughs> good luck. And, and they're saying that Fox wants it because you know they're losing the UFC. The UFC is going to be on ESPN now. They're saying that they want SmackDown to be more MMA-like and more realistic yeah. and more more wrestling-based. They want Rousey or Lesnar. They want some sort of MMA presence. On the show, you think that uh, a they're going to do that and take away from Raw, and b do you think that there's any possible way this sports entertainment company can resemble a pro wrestling company? Did you just watch the Royal Rumble or the Survivor? Which one was it? I watched two, two, two weeks ago. Royal Survivor Rumble, Series. Survivor, yeah, Survivor Series. Did you watch that? Uh, that to me was indicative of what their product is right now, uh, and it was atrocious. Um, you know, so, you know, if, if that's what Fox sports just spent 1.2 billion on, I've got some ocean front property here in new Brighton, Pennsylvania. I can sell them for a lot cheaper. <laughs> um, it's just astounding to me that, you know, and, and this is like the, where, where you look and you try to assuage it, you know, and, you know, I, I respect Vince as a businessman. I think he's a jackass human being. Uh, but how in the hell he got Fox Sports to pony up that kind of money for that product is stunning to me. And yet he did, you know, so, uh, but <laughs> much like a lot of people in the, in the, in the pantheon and the history of WWE and WWF, uh, many were surprised at the tail end that things didn't turn out the way that they expected. And I'm, I'm again, I'm going to take a stab in the, a wild stab in the dark here and say that Fox sports is probably going to be a little bit surprised and a little bit chagrined at what they get as far as a payback on their $1.2 billion investment. I just don't see it. And that's not me taking a shot. That's me reading the tea leaves of having spent how long I have in the business. I just don't see how in this day and age you're going to have a, a three to three and a half million people tuning in on a Friday night to watch that product. It, it, I just don't see it. And, you know, maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe, maybe I'll already be able to come back and say, what an, what an idiot Shane Douglas was that he thought that, that couldn't happen. But, you know, considering that SmackDown hasn't drawn 
3 million viewers on a consistent basis since 2003. And you guys know television probably better than I know it. Uh, 2003 is an eon ago when it comes to television ratings. So to look and say that Fox is somehow going to miraculously, miraculously draw in, you know, three to three and a half million viewers on a Friday night. I don't see it. I, I just, I can't, I can't ponder it and can't figure it. And, you know, I'm sure that Fox has a lot of people spending a lot of money doing a lot of studies trying to figure this out. And I'm sure it wasn't just some number they pour out of thin air, but you know, for the, for the guys sake that are there, I hope that I'm wrong. I hope that they do because, you know, the old saying is a rising tide rises all ships. I hope that I'm wrong. I hope that they can garner that three to three and a half million viewers. I just don't see it. I just can't, can't see it and can't fathom it, especially after I watched that pay-per-view two weeks ago because it was atrociously bad. Did you make it until the main event or, or did, you, did you miss Lesnar versus Daniel Bryan? No, I, I didn't make it that far, and I'll tell you why. Because the people that were paying me to watch it left before that. But we were about three or four matches away from the match. So the people that were paying me to watch the pay-per-view with them, they didn't stick around to watch wow. you know, right. that match. And, and, and I think that is about as telling a uh, comment as you can give about the product. Atrocious. It was horrific. You know, I went in watching that pay-per-view telling myself, like I always do, don't be negative, find something positive to say, keep your mouth shut, and just watch, right? And uh, within 15 minutes, if that, I'm scratching my head and thinking, what in the fuck are they doing? The one thing that I was sure of then, not now, <laughs> but then going in was that at very least, no matter how bad this pay-per-view is, uh, at least Seth Rollins and Nakamura is going to give a great performance. And so I waited for that match. And when they came on and then they got into the body of the match, I quickly realized how wrong I was because as long as I've been in the business, I could not make heads or tails of what these two were trying to do. You know, keep, keep in mind in its basic form, a, a wrestling match is supposed to be, let's say between JP and Chad, a wrestling match is supposed to be JP is trying to pin Chad or Chad's trying to pin JB. That's what it boils down to. The rest of it's all fluff and stuff. And just uh, icing on the cake. But in its most basic form and function, you are both trying to pin each other. It's a competition. Now, with that in mind, go back and watch what I thought was going to be the penultimate match on that pay-per-view. And watch Nakamura and watch Seth Rollins. And it will tell you everything that is wrong with sports entertainment today. Because these are two phenomenal athletes. Two guys that up until that match, I thought had a pretty clear understanding of, of our industry. And yet you watch that and all you can do is scratch your head. As somebody who's been in the business as long as I've been in it, all you can do is scratch your head and think what the fucking fuck is going on here. Uh, I would dare say that Larry the Accenting and Tom Billington both would say the same thing I'm saying right now. Uh, we, we've just gotten the business so far away from what it's supposed to be. There's, there's no part of this uh, equation that if they were here that Larry or Tom or that I'm trying to invoke today that, Hey, we were so much better in our day. But the one thing that was omnipresent in any match that you watched 
before a certain period known as sports entertainment was that participant A was trying to pin participant B or B versus A. Uh, there, it, it's supposed to be a competition, not a dance. It's not supposed to be, let's go out there and show off our athleticism and how many moves we can do in five minutes. It's supposed to be looking like a, a, an athletic contest as opponent one is trying to pin opponent two or opponent two is trying to pin opponent one. Not, let's just go up out here and beat each other up for a while. And then while you're laying way over there in the corner, I'm going to walk over here and get on my knees and put my arms on the ropes and look at the camera. Uh, isn't, aren't you supposed to be going for a pinfall attempt? Uh, again, it's, it's nothing that I could say would make a delineation between sports entertainment and professional wrestling stronger than what you're seeing in the performances today. It speaks for itself and it's abysmal. It is that time again. AFA ask franchise anything. And Christopher by email sent this one in. This is an interesting one. Shane, during the Attitude Era, were you ever thought of to be brought back and were you ever contacted by the WWF? There was a rumor at the time that Jake the Snake Roberts or yourself was going to play the higher power, which ended up being Vince McMahon. Any truth to these rumors? You broke up the higher what? The higher power. Oh. That was never anything that was offered to me. But yeah, I, I was offered a role when I left ECW. I was offered a role in WWE at the time. Uh, but the money that they offered was a joke. Uh, it, it was laughable. And at that time, having left ECW and owed the massive amount of money that I was owed, I wasn't really in a position to uh, decide, well, I'll go with this one as opposed to that one. You know, because keep in mind, right now everything's 2020, right? We can all look back and say, well, WCW failed and WWF didn't. Um, but at that time, you know, we were just coming off of a fairly strong, what, 83 or 93 week run where WCW had beaten WWE in the ratings. And so it was sort of a fluidity to it. You know, it could be this one, it could be that one. And when I was offered the money, that was exponential to what I was offered in WWE. That pretty much made up my mind. But what I I need the fans listening to understand is this. If Vince McMahon comes to you and says, hey, I love your work, I'm going to offer you a hundred and $50,000 $50,000 to come to work. Well, you can damn well bet that as soon as he says that number, he's already got you placed beneath everybody that's making 151 or more. So, you know, if you're going to take the amount of money that he's offering you, understand right there you can tell where you are in the pecking order. So, if you're going up against the talent, whether you're better than that talent or not, that's making 175000 You're doing the job. That's the way Vince sees things and always has. Uh, so for me, when it became this huge chunk of money versus this little pittance of money that was being offered by WWE, that made up my mind for me. You know, let, let's face it, the franchise character fit much better into the, uh, the then WWF uh, attitude era, then it did the WCW, uh, you know, Millionaires Club or whatever. Uh, but as a person speaking, that was owed the huge amount of money that I was from ECW. And like I've talked about before, a lot of that money, that wasn't money that I was owed for performances. A lot of that money was money that I had spent out of my pocket promoting. ECW in the Pittsburgh area in the areas that I promoted. So it wasn't just a question of me, you know, taking off from the same launch pad. 
in this case, I was taking off from the ECW launch pad that had me, you know, six floors below everybody else because I had spent a lot of that money out of my pocket. So, uh, you know, I will always be eternally thankful for ECW and the opportunities that it afforded me. But I will also speak my mind clearly and, and, and rightfully about what happened there at the end as to why I left. I would have never left ECW. ECW was my home. Uh, but when Vince was offering me a pittance and WCW was offering me a substantial paycheck, uh, it's like I always tell people, if, you know, if you're flipping burgers and uh, McDonald's offers you $10 an hour and Burger King offers you $25 an hour or 50 bucks an hour, you're a fool to go to work for McDonald's because you think McDonald's has a bigger footprint. Uh, take the money. Absolutely. Great point. And just one thing I want to mention about Shane Douglas in the WBF Attitude Era, it would have been awesome to see a main event feud, Steve Austin versus the franchise. Uh, we'd have had a lot of fun. Uh, and there was so much history there, right? I mean, between, mm-hmm. you know, you know, Steve as, as, as one of the Hollywood blondes and, and the franchise character. But I, I think that you could, at least I knew in the money that WWE was offering me, Vince was offering me, uh, that he had no plans whatsoever to take it anywhere near that in that direction. And had he, he would have offered me a substantially bigger chunk of money and would have seen the value in that. Um, but you know, for anybody that's been in our business knows, uh, and probably a lot of fans from the outside looking in know that Vince sees things in a petty kind of way, you know, so, well, he wouldn't kiss my bare ass, so I'm going to teach him a lesson, that kind of thing. And uh, I'm proud of the fact that I've been able to bore out the career that I have and build the name that I have and the brand that I have. And I never had to kiss his ass and wouldn't. Uh and I think that probably bothers him a lot more than it does me, because, <laughs> quite frankly, it doesn't bother me in the least. I'm I'm thrilled to have had the career that I've had, and not had to have done that. <laughs> I don't know if he's got the franchise pin cushion or voodoo doll or uh, dartboard, <laughs> <laughs> urinal cake. <laughs> I, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm. Uh, uh, and it's funny because I haven't received a Christmas card from Vince in like. 30 years. It's strange. I can't figure out why. <laughs> not, not even an autographed copy of uh, Muscle and Fitness from about uh, 10 years ago? You didn't get one of those? <laughs> no, I sure didn't. Oh, my gosh. Well, Vince, if you want to send one, you can send it to uh, John or myself. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll make sure it gets to the hands of the franchise without a doubt. But, hey, I don't know if you know this, Shane, but we're making a push on Twitter to get over that 1,000-follower threshold. And what we've done is we've gone ahead and we put together another one of these awesome Triple Threat Podcast prize packs. So, nice. yeah, what we've done, excuse me, I'm, I feel terrible, so I'm, I'm trying to take breaths as I'm talking. But what I've done is I've taken a wonderful picture that you've graciously signed of you and your, uh, your <laughs> dynamic dude partner, Johnny Ace, where you have uh, inscribed it. Uh, dynamic duds scru- crossed out to say dudes. <laughs> uh, we are giving that away to one lucky follower who gets us over that thousand threshold. And uh, I said, I even stepped it up. I said, hey, look, if we get to a thousand and one, I'll even throw five extra photos in there. So if we can get over a thousand followers, somebody's going to be having themselves a nice little uh, Christmas bounty headed their way. So I just want to get that on everybody's radar. If you haven't seen it on Twitter, I'm trying to do these Friday night blasts and gets a little bit of traction, but, uh, we got to get over a thousand. I mean, come on. I mean, what's going on here? I mean, we give, we give great quality content every week and, uh, we need a little bit of love. What do you think there, Shane? A little bit of love? Well, you're, you're saying that I misspelled dudes. (laughs) Well, there's a clever, uh, crossing out of uh, it's dynamic duds slash dudes cross out dudes because hmm. I've always prided myself on being pretty damn good at my spelling and and uh, <laughs> and my articulation so I would find that to be probably a one of a kind picture it either says dynamic dudes or dynamic or dynamic duds or dy- dy- dynamic dads <laughs> that's so. <laughs> 
the way it, the way well, you did it. My penmanship hasn't always been the greatest, but I, but I, I is a pretty good speaker. <laughs> so I can, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I said that's probably a one of a kind. So for anybody wanting that, I, I would, I would get it now because that's probably a. I, I don't recall doing that twice, so that must be a one of a kind. You were when you signed it. You were we were laughing. We we had a good little chuckle uh, over it when, when we did it, and we also threw in a couple stickers. So you got yourself a franchise uh, triple threat sticker as well as a two man power trip sticker. So uh, get us over a thousand, somebody will win that. But if you get us to a thousand and one, somebody's going to get a couple extra more. So let's see what we can do here. If we can do something special. And this weekend we will all, uh, you know, get a little uh, triple threat podcast uh, think tank session for a couple of minutes. We'll pop by and see you, Shane. You're going to be busy as anything like you always are when we're in Philadelphia. So uh, look forward to seeing you, partner, and looking forward to everybody on the social media ranks. So please hit us up on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip, at Wrestling Pal, at The Franchise SD, and at The Three Threat Pod. And follow us on our website, tmptofwrestling.com. Go to the Triple Threat page. Get all the links. Get all the downloads. And join us every single week here for the Triple Threat Podcast. So, Shane, that's enough out of me. you got a very busy weekend on tap. You're going to be moving all over the map. So if you want to tell us a little bit about that uh, after it, you can get us on our way and out of here to uh, episode number uh, 75. All I know is I'll be at the ECW arena this weekend, and I think we have a match on Saturday night. Uh, so make sure you tune in. Uh, if you don't, if you're not in the Philadelphia area, you get a chance to come by. Make sure you tune in next week for the Big Seven Five, almost as old as my partners. Uh, so big episode seventy five next week. Make sure you listen or get your ass franchised. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.